Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning back in. I'm Ryan Tansom, your host, and today we have on the show Joseph Fung, and we're gonna be talking about what we can learn from a serial entrepreneur. And if you are you know, very familiar with your relationship with your business, if you, if you have other business owner, entrepreneur friends, you realize that we all have this, uh, this big gravitational pull to have uh, our identity tied up into our business because we care for the employees or suppliers or vendors, whoever might be the big impact that we're making is being done with our business. And the, also the wealth that we're creating is being provided by the business. So this business is a, a huge vehicle to make the impact that you want, the wealth and enjoy what you're doing. And I think a lot of people struggle with how do I do all that with also realizing that this is a financial asset that I want to liquidate and tap into at some point. And if I only view it as a financial asset, I can't make the change in the social uh, impact that I want or whatever it might be. And what I learned from Joseph is that it is possible to make the impact while also scaling and selling companies and holding both of those two things in the same space if you're approaching it with intentionality. And that is exactly what Joseph is a wonderful example on. So a little bit about Joseph is he is the CEO of Uvaro, which is a tech sales career accelerator and of Kite, a sales enablement platform purpose built to provide sales teams with the information they need when they need it. Joseph graduated from the University of Waterloo's computer engineering program, and he speaks frequently on the topics of sales leadership, diversity, and corporate responsibility. He's been in, in, involved in and sold five companies, particularly one that's notable that to NetSuite for 32 million bucks. He's also going to talk about a, a failed exit that I think we can all learn a lot from. And Joseph, what was what is very unique about him is that he, from a very early age, realized that his identity was as an entrepreneur and his goal was to build great companies that he creates wealth with as well as makes the impact. So Joseph is a great, great example that we can all learn from about how do we hold the impact and the wealth creation as well as our identity all in the same space while also allowing ourselves options to acknowledge that at some point we're going to have to do something with this business, but we want it to carry on without us while also not sacrificing our financial targets or the impact that we want to make or the reputation or legacy that we've built. So tons of good things to learn from Joseph. I can't wait for you to tune in. So without further ado, here's my interview with Joseph. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Joseph, how are you doing today? Really good, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Um, Actually, really good because it's going to be 100 degrees today in Minnesota. I don't know when this gets released, but my air conditioner went out and I found out that I had a service uh, plan on it with the the energy company. So they came out and fixed it for free. So I was like, yeah, I just won the lottery. (laughs) That's (laughs) totally irrelevant to what we're doing. But yeah, so how well I was doing. (laughs) 
I love the fact that air conditioning is is what makes it a win, and and the fact that <laughs> you're you're in you know the Minneapolis area and I'm in Canada, and we're relishing the air conditioning is is too much. It's too good. And it's first world problems. We're blessed to be able to have that problem. And my wife grew up with no air conditioning, so it's like you know progress, right? We're <laughs> this generation's gonna have air conditioning. Anyways, totally unrelated to the show. I, I'm excited to have you on because you've got multiple X's behind your behind you and you were just talking about, hey, what are we going to get into war stories or this? And there's going to be plenty of ground to cover. And uh, for the listeners, why don't you just give us the broad brushstrokes of your background, understand a little bit about you, and then we can take uh, parts of the story and unpack them. For sure. So uh, computer engineer by education. Uh, so went to uh, top rated engineering school, had a lot of fun there. I'm a terrible engineer. You, you shouldn't let me you know, build, build any bridges or, or production uh, code. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have much more competent developers and engineers who work with me, uh, but uh, five times entrepreneur, all in the business to business software space. Uh, and They've been everything from kind of bootstrapped, you know, two people in a garage, kind of working on things, to uh, larger businesses, sold to multinationals. Uh, ended up running uh, NetSuite's global HR technology business uh, for several years, uh, and back in the fray now. So, my journey is kind of this repeat entrepreneurial journey, and I feel like I've been, you know, refining my craft every step of the way. Um, with my latest venture, we're thinking about it more as something really long-term. I've got young kids and I don't want to start another venture until they're out of the house. So I've got at least a, you know, a decade or two ahead of me. Um, and, and now we're helping people uh, transition from other industries into tech and scaling their careers uh, with a, a really fun career success platform. So yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. That's, I love it. Why don't you explain that a little bit and understand like what is it that you're teaching them and why? And then I want to go back and understand because you said five times entrepreneur and there's a bunch of learnings along the way. And then you're now you're teaching people too. So let's let, let curious of what you're teaching and what, what are some of the students doing? And then we can kind of weave that together of how you got there compared to, uh, based on the five exits that you had. Yeah, for sure. So the, the kind of what we're doing and what we're teaching, um, a lot of people think about a change in their career. Like, hey, I want to move from job A to job B. Uh, but what we're really focusing on is long-term career success. Uh, and, and I mean, the stats are really, really terrible. You know, for, for everyday people, uh, wage growth has stopped. You know, people are mm-hmm. not earning more. Uh, on average, people switch jobs. Uh, so like they're, they're pivoting between companies, you know, every two and a half years. Uh, and I mean, college debt, all those stats. Uh, what we're doing is we're teaching people how to sell technology and how to chart their career path through the tech industry, and then we actually introduce them to technology companies. So, I mean, the stats are pretty astronomical. You know, on average, our members are doubling their income. Uh, they're landing amazing roles. They're we have one hundred percent job satisfaction with our members, and yeah, it's really crazy. Now, moving from business to business sales, mm-hmm. where, where you hear, "Great, you helped my conversion rate," and, and that feels good. I love supporting entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but now we have people doing things like posting videos of themselves dancing on TikTok, telling us we've saved their life, telling us they feel more human. It it really feel, fills the cup. So I've moved from B2B to more B2C and uh, we're changing lives every day. Uh, it's really, really cool. I'm super, uh, super curious on how you landed there. And, you know, before we get into any of the specifics that you, you're talking about, a couple of the mechanics of some of the exits that you had. And I want to go, I want to get into some of those stories too. But along the way, Joseph, what how did you land here where you're helping people? So you go from business to business, conversion rates, like where did the mindset shift of like, hey, I need maybe something more? I mean, was there throughout the, throughout the journey that they kind of hit you in the face or was it a natural progression? Uh, I think it was, it was a little bit of both. Um, 
the natural progression, I think a lot of your the audience will probably resonate with. If anyone else, you know, listening in is, is kind of technical like me, really introverted like me, you know, you might experience that sales is the worst part of building a company. Like building product, you know, no problem. Get this up on the website, you know, do that. I'll go buy some people Facebook will apps. buy if they put yeah, it up, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like, you know, practicing a pitch, like and I mean things like going to B and I, you know, for for regular networking meetings to practice the way I pitch, you know, pra- like all that stuff. Building the sales team was always the toughest. And I mean, honestly, after a few companies, I began to think it was just me. Uh, and it was always so hard. But then our latest tech company was selling to sales organizations. And we realized, oh my goodness, everyone has this problem. And where we realized we could solve it was actually my sister's experience. So hmm. the the my growth and journey helped me see, hey, there's, there's this gap. It's really painful. But then seeing my sister, who was an accomplished entrepreneur, She's run a martial arts studio, a food company, a training business. She wanted to get out of the entrepreneurial journey and be an employee for a bit. You know, make a big impact, be rewarded. So she wanted to be in sales, but didn't want to be fully accountable for everyone's livelihood. She was just in a different state of life. Um, And she was brilliant. And she wasn't getting any interviews. She wasn't getting any introductions. And and we're sitting here saying, you know, we've been in tech. We know what it means for someone to be successful. We know she could be successful. Why the heck is no one giving her that Mm -hmm. chance? And that was a real kind of, as you said, like the, the punch in the face to say, hey, we got, we got to solve this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we did. It's been really, really fun. What were the reasons that she wasn't, that people, like what was, the, what was some of the disconnect? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing, when we talk about you know, getting into tech, we're talking about hardware sales, software sales. Um, and a lot of people don't realize how fast the space is growing. You know, the, mm-hmm. the average growth, even through the pandemic, is north of 20% a year. And that means by 2030, it's going to be an $800 billion industry. So these companies don't have the time, the space to catch a breath. You can never Mm -hmm. build a robust training organization that's there for three or four years because three to four years, your company looks entirely different. Your market looks different. So Mm -hmm. every software company is looking for the same thing. Someone who Mm -hmm. has already sold software to their market, ideally in a competitive space, and the numbers mm-hmm. don't add up. There's like less than 100,000 software sales professionals out there, and the market needs another oh 400,000. So, so it's just, it's this I really that, weird Those problem. are crazy numbers. Holy cow. It's, it is insane. And no one has the bandwidth to do that kind of transitionary training. And so it's silly things like, and just because there's some people in the audience who probably don't know the industry as well, it's silly things like we don't say SaaS for software as a service. We say SaaS. And Mm -hmm. interviewers would have a conversation and you get the one slip of the tongue. You say S-A-A-S or you say R instead of A-R-R and like, oh, you don't get the second interview. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just totally like x from one little um, minor acronym in this pronunciation. (laughs) Yeah. And and that was happening left, right and center. And and that's what got us really, I mean, candidly angry about it. Like, well, Mm -hmm. this is a crap deal. We got to fix this. So I, I, I want to, well, we can come back to this too. Cause like one of the things that I was excited about having you on the show is, you know, with your, uh, I mean, with multiple exits behind you and the understanding sales, one thing that I I've noticed, and I'll, I'll just give you some context and see, see mm-hmm. where in the different journeys that you've had that this might um, pull from is the, these, whether it's clients that come out of our, of our training program and like, Hey, I now see my company like an asset might put the, you know, the financials in a way where they can actually see into the future, like net income, EBITDA. Then the the goal is like, Hey, I got to build a sales machine in order to predict how all this cash flow actually happens. 
where in your journey did that start to come in? Like, you know, because the reason I bring this up is a lot of people, unless they have some sort of education, they're talking to entrepreneurs that have sold. It's hard to look at your business from the other side and say, this is going to be a valuable asset as well. And sales is the engine that kicks it. And it's not just top line revenue that we that's important. It's like the right kind of clients with the right kind of products and services. So along your path, when you're when you're focused on sales and these exits and the valuations, how did you start to synthesize those concepts? You used a great word earlier about how we're, we're privileged to do what we're doing. And I feel very much the same. I My parents have been very entrepreneurial. And so early on, I, I got the opportunity to kind of run my own you know, business. And, and I mean, as a solopreneur, you know, as an independent contractor, as a consultant, I mean, I was making business cards and brochures and, and diagrams and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But I mean, it was great. I was billing out at 50 bucks an hour. You know, all my peers were, you know, earning like six, seven yeah. bucks. Yeah, six, seven bucks at a barista at a coffee shop or a lawn, mowing lawns or who knows what. <laughs> no, no, totally. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know about, you know, what you did during high school, but I remember saying, you know, maybe I should go work in fast food. And I, I took a job at Wendy's for a little while because someone told me it builds character. I was like, oh, screw this. I'm going back to ads and brochures. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was literally worked at a coffee shop and then I went and built uh, Doug pools because I was yeah. literally making twice as much money just shoveling dirt. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I'm lucky in that my parents, you know, pushed me to that. And I mean, that, that was fun and that was really good. But uh, as I, I was going on to college, I, I had to stop doing the high school part-time contractor thing because I was going to another city. Um, one of the things my mother said with me, and this is, everyone's heard this stuff. It's like, hey, remember ask yourself, did you enjoy working in the business or on the business more? Uh, mm-hmm. And the way she positioned it to me was, you, yeah, as you think about what you're doing, would you like to remember for being being good, really good at building websites and building graphics or really good at building a business? What high were you when you had this question? Oh, crap. Let me do the numbers. Uh, 18. I was 18 then. Yeah. Holy cow. That's, yeah. that's some insightful gold nuggets there. Yeah. I didn't realize it until much later. Yeah. Because the answer there was like, I don't know, but yet the website thing is okay. But you know, I'd like <laughs> I'd like to be known for being building a big business, uh, and that reframed everything that I was doing. Uh, and you like it gets you out of that mindset of mm-hmm. uh, where you choose to invest. But I think thinking about it that way, do I want to be remembered for building a great business? Challenged me to think about really important things early, like our values, our culture, the scalability, really early on, because um, it's. It's easy to get caught up in like the bookkeeping and, and the measurements and everything like that that you need to do. Like you do have to mm-hmm. do them. Uh, but I think it was real. The thing that helped me the most was emphasizing some of those kind of higher order questions really early on, uh, mm-hmm. and I didn't have to struggle with a lot of those value statements later. So let's let's peel apart like what is a big business because I think a lot of entrepreneurs get sucked into the vanity metrics of top line revenue, amount of employees, product launches, amount of users, or whatever it might be. And then, you know, uh, they end up on my show because they've sold their business. Like I didn't know what value creation was. I knew what top line revenue or bottom line was. So maybe I don't know if one of the exits or how, how did you, where did it, your mindset shift go from, hey, big business to what creates a valuable business? Did, did, was there things along the way that helped you uh, shift yeah. that uh, and, and to look at that perspective? I think it was definitely, I definitely matured, you know, I thinking over the businesses. Uh, and I mean, if, if I kind of crank the clock all the, the way back, I mean, when I was in high school doing that solopreneur thing, 
you know, I built a list of things I wanted to accomplish in life. And, and two of them, I, I saw them as two things. I was, I was a weird kid. Uh, like one of them was run a billion dollar company. So like a billion dollars in revenue. And one of them was bring a company public, you know, and those are vanity things. Like those are like public. That's not necessarily a definition of value. Um, mm-hmm. But if I think back to the last company I sold, this is the one where we, uh, so I'll put some yeah, benchmarks. I was say, give, give us a, would you give us a, a rundown of the different kind of companies and, and sure. some of the, the attributes of the exits and then you can dive in? So the first was simultaneously a success and an abject failure. We built some discussion forum software. We're taking a freemium approach, leveraging an open source model. When we tried to add paid services, the whole community kind of rebelled against it because we uh-huh. didn't talk about it from day one. We just talked about making a difference. And uh great tool, great app. It's still used on like a million websites internationally, like just great. And, but we had to turn it into an offer profit and let it do its own thing because mm-hmm. we couldn't add that monetization layer. Um, we ran a company that built a content management system. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's like dating myself, but it was like WordPress before WordPress was a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. That was super cool. We sold that through resellers. Uh, so we would sell it to design and advertising agencies who would then build a website and then uh, sell it. Again, super cool. We had an upfront license, but also a subscription piece because no designer knew how to support a website. So we had mm-hmm. a, a subscription component in there. We carved that into two pieces and sold the services side to one agency and the software to our biggest reseller. Um, that was super cool. The third was hyper-local social networks. So think about the people you might bump into if you're walking your dog. Mm-hmm. Sucked in a ton of information like town counselors, schools, garbage pickup schedule, classified ads. Uh we had that lined up to sell to our biggest competitor and the whole deal fell apart hours before it was supposed to finish. And that was painful. Um, the fourth, the most recent that I've sold before the current company, you know, my fifth, uh, the fourth was an HR software package. And we designed that one to say, Hey, how do we build this effectively investing as little of our own money as possible? Cause all the others had been bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. This one, we, the total investment from the, the founders was a little over $10,000 uh, we ended up raising about three and a half million uh, from outside investors, and then uh, in about three years sold the company for thirty-two million. Uh, so, oh, wow. yeah, pretty happy with the the metrics. And that last one is what helped us think through value creation, because we had to put a price on the sale, and that was interesting. That was really really a challenge. So, tell me about that. What do you mean? Like, what was interesting about it, and how how did you guys get to putting a price on the sale? So. Uh, I mean, we think about valuing an enterprise, I'm a believer that there's two very different lenses. You know, the first is very computational. You can go and do a 409A, you could do your own, you know, analysis, you could do the, you know, the, the present kind of value flow. of the future yeah. cash flows. <laughs> yes. Uh, those are all, and you should do those. So you've got a sanity check. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is it's worth what you can get someone to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And very often these two are very different. I've seen... I've seen markets where the, like the cash flow model says it should be worth X, but nobody wants to buy it. So, you know, all you're going to be able to command is a fraction of it, uh, and vice mm-hmm. versa. Ours was very much the latter model. Um, like if you did it on a, a multiple of future cash flows, we, I mean, we barely would have sold it for what we'd invested in it because it was a you know early stage high tech startup. The value for the acquirer was what we could do in their customer base. If we were selling our software to their customers, if we were Mm -hmm. expanding their market, um, the other way is they were publicly traded. And so they're publicly traded as a multiple of revenues. And 
we could say, hey, our revenues in their multiple would raise their market cap by X, which puts a value on it. We had a second benchmark in terms of the, what people would pay for it. We were in the middle of fundraising. So we had a valuation pegged from some of our conversations with venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was helpful. The real deciding factor that helped us decide the route to go was we mapped out what the outcome would be for the founders. If we chose to keep raising money, how would we get diluted? What our mm-hmm. share would be? If we eventually went public, how might that share price eventually go? And I mean, there's a lot of like fingers in the wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other one was compared to selling now, what would be the outcome to the founders? And so we compared those two and, and that helped really clarify the decision. Super, super helpful. And and like, like what I love about it is you, you literally just thought about the end scenario and reverse back into it. Very, very appropriate for the name of the show. And I want to, it's, it's interesting, Joseph, like I, in our, in our training, we teach the, the very, very, very similar to how you worded it and articulated it is that we, we call it intrinsic or the financial value, discounted cash flow. It's all based on the, the weighted average cost of capital, like just very computational based on the riskier cash flow, but it's a cash flow play. And then there's the transactional value where there's a buyer and a seller. And then there's what we call the purpose of the deal. We're like, yeah. whoever the purpose, there could be five buyers and five completely different purposes that they're going to pay for your company. And it's not necessarily a cash flow play, but you know, what we try to, ex- it, try to explain, I want to see if this relates to some of your prior exits when you spun off the software and the services that the goal is choices. That's what I want for anybody, Joseph, after going through ours yeah. is like, Hey, if you have cash flow, you can always literally guarantee yourself that you're going to be get, you're going to yield that valuation based on the cash flow. But if it's not a cash flow play, you got to hustle your way to that goal line as fast as possible. Yeah. I, something that caught my ear was the, the, you spun the soft, the services and the software play separately in one. Was there, what was going on there? Does the concepts we were just talking about relate to how that worked or like, what was the reasoning yeah. behind that? So both. So, um, so one of the things I'm a firm believer in is that most sales, including a business sale are kind of inherently emotional and often irrational. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and if I can, if I can get, uh, an, you know, a purchaser or an investment community aligned around the excitement and potential in the business, you know, I can generate more value for myself, my employees, my shareholders. Um, so if I had to choose either direction, I would aim for the latter. So when I think about the businesses I'm building, I try to think about how do we create something that is really going to garner excitement, is going to have more, more impact in a transaction and, and have a, a really big reason. Like maybe it's so for the Tribe HR, the HR software, we built the most beautiful HR software on the market. And the impact for that buyer was the, the ability to build remarkably usable software that would compel usage. Get just a huge unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was worth a lot, uh, arguably more than just the you know, multiple on cash flows. Um, in terms of the earlier transactions, uh, what I realized is, and timing was, it was incredible. It's like I had... It took me eight years to do my undergraduate degree because I was running my businesses while I was doing it. Um, <laughs> my wife told me she wasn't going to be married; wouldn't marry me if I didn't graduate before her. <laughs> hey, but I'm worth a bunch of money, and I still haven't graduated. What, 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 what's more important? <laughs> yeah, much. So the, the timing of all of this was: uh, I finally okay, I I graduated in I think it was May. She graduated in August, so it was like just by the skin of my teeth. We got <laughs> married in September, and then took off. 
uh, for our, our honeymoon. And over the course of the honeymoon, I spent a bunch of time, I mean, like all entrepreneurs, you just waste every minute thinking about the business, um, thinking through the outcomes of the future, how it was going to go. And as we came back, realized this business was not going to realize that outsized outcome oh. for everybody. We weren't going to be able to get to that kind of higher order outcome. So we said, great, you know what? We'll have better success running a different business. We should sell it. And the final transactions came down to an execution play. It's like, we've made the decision we're going to sell. So now just how do we maximize the outcome for hmm. everybody involved? So it, okay. So, so many interesting things about that. I, one is that how did you, was there, maybe it's your engineering brain, but like viewing that objectively. Cause in the reason that the context behind the question, Joseph, is that so many entrepreneurs that are the founders and it's their identity, their baby, and they can't objectively look at it like that. So like, how did you process that? And then how did you determine what was important in that outcome once you made the decision? It's a tough one. You're, you're so true. Uh, I think that comment that my, my mother made like really early on in my career helped me identify that you know, my identity was as an entrepreneur that that's what I did, uh, mm -hmm. not a CEO of company X or owner of company Y, but the act of creating something is what I really enjoyed, you know, building something, scaling it. And that made it a lot easier to look at it objectively. It, it, I mean, it has a ton of benefits too. I, mm -hmm. Feedback I get from investors, from advisors, I never take it personally. You know, it's, a, it's about the business. I don't see it as just a judgment call on me. It's, it's mm -hmm. about the system and the factors. And it's very liberating because the success of a business is not just dependent on what you do. It's on the market, on the competitors, on broader societal trends. And it, it saves you a bit from that heartache of like, oh my God, I've got to fix everything. Like Sometimes you <laughs> Dude, can't. I think that was yeah. the most well-articulated way I've ever heard it described because you're so right. And I don't think I... I've, I've experienced what you said, but like being able to literally say, Hey, this is not my deal. I'm trying the hardest I can. And this is my, my goal is to be an entrepreneur or a business owner. And it's this, this is just the, the thing that I'm working on today. It's uh, a, yeah. how, how did you then go back? Let me, let me see how the best way to answer, to ask this question. So, you know, I know that you're, you're huge on sustainability and some bit, you know, big impacts that you want to make on the world. How do you take the things that are important to you? And then put those in the same equation as maximizing a purchase price or so. Cause like this, I'm a big conscious capitalism, capitalism yeah. fan. I don't know if you are. And like, there's this way of like, how do you do good and make money? And the, how do you balance them? How did you go about doing that? Cause I, I can tell you're very co conscious of the people and the stakeholders. Was there a certain process that you went through? I guess short answer is yes. We've experimented and refined it over time. So one of the big things that I've internalized is that, uh, we can't kick the can down the road. You know, I think, and it's a very, this is a valid point of view, just not one that I internalize the idea of, well, you know, let's make money, get the exit, and then I've got more money to give away. And I think that works for a lot of people. What I found is that, and, and this is part of my own, what's the word, you know, ultimately some people are procrastinators. Uh, let's just, I'll call a spade a spade. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, a procrastinator. Exactly. Yeah, kick things down. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just get, get <laughs> shit done right now. Like, let's run right into the bus. <laughs> And so I've always found, you know, if if it's always getting kicked down the can, there's a chance it might never happen. And mm -hmm. I would hate, I would hate myself if I got to a situation where I had a big exit and because of circumstances or pressures or just where my head was at the time, I didn't give back at that time. So mm -hmm. 
I'm a believer in kind of giving myself the rules and guidelines that will let me take actions that I can be proud of when I look at it, you know, in my, my dotage and old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So things that we did were things like um, we've always had volunteer time off, you know, making it easy for team members to take time off to go and volunteer. That's easy. That doesn't hit our cash flow. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, a little bit of time off isn't going to hurt your performance or productivity either. So that's easy. Um, things like giving away a portion of the company. Uh, or giving away a portion of receipts. So we've always done things like uh, a percentage of each transaction going to a donation or making it easy for customers to round up their transactions to add in a donation. Oh, super cool. Yeah. So so silly things like uh, we would send out invoices. And, you know, the invoice might be for like $1,562. And at the bottom, instead of saying, send us a check for this, We'd include that in smaller text, send us a check for this, or send us a check for this, and we'll make the donation to the charity that we approve. Almost like uh, the, acorn, and, the acorn investing philosophy or whatever, right? Totally, yeah. And literally, the number of customers, they get that. It's like a $20 ramp up, or like, you know, on a $10,000 project, it might be a $100 roundup. Uh, the number who would look at it and say, oh, you know what? That's a great idea. You know, we should do something like that. And they would just <laughs> send it over. Yeah. Um, so we'd look for those items. Uh what we're doing right now, we've gone even further, and I'm super proud of the team. So we've we've donated one percent of our company to the pledge one percent. Uh, you know, so effectively, you know, when we we've already given the equity away. So if we sell mm-hmm. the company, the proceeds will just happen. I can't undo that. Mm-hmm. I feel very good about that. Uh, <laughs> Burn the boats. We also, yeah, we set up a community fund too. Uh, so we partnered the foundation to set up a fund, and all of our employees get the opportunity to opt in. So. You know, myself, our co-founders, all of our employees, we do an automatic deduction off our payroll and it goes into an endowment. So the Uvaro Community Fund will always exist. If we have a bad year and we can't donate, it'll still be there giving money. If someone buys our company and they don't like the idea, you know, they're just cranky scrooges, uh, mm-hmm. the fund will still be there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that feels that feels really, really good. So you, you just uh, mentioned something that I think is a good question is that when you've sold... Because like you, you, these things that you're talking about are personal, right? They're values <laughs> that you have valued as the founder and the, as the the CEO. When you, there's always this, there's always these trade-offs when someone's going, if they're going for maximized purchase price, and it all depends on whether you ran a controlled auction with an investment banker, or if you're just taking one out of the blue offer, but there's whole notion of choices of saying, okay, the company's worth this from like the cash flow perspective, but this is what it would be worth from the buyer, from the strategic buyer. And the, the, that would be the max value, but they don't like this. This is the way that they view the culture, the economy, people, whatever it might be. Did you have some, like, I, I don't know if it was a matrix or how in your head you say not willing to sell for that price because of these reasons. So we're going to have to create more choices other way. Like how did you instill those values throughout these transactions? Yeah. Great, great question. So I guess short answer is no, we didn't kind of have a greater matrix like that. Uh, similar, you know, I think one of the things that was different is that we we wrote down the idea of um, you know, non-negotiable principles. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the entrepreneurs that's been always been a great kind of mentor advisor, uh, you know, whether he knows it or not, just every conversation we have, he gives me these wonderful <laughs> pearls of wisdom. And I'm like, I've learned so much from you, Dave. And uh, I, I don't think he'd ever say like he's my mentor, but he definitely learned a ton from him. You know, one of the things that he said is like, you know, you got to get comfortable with the idea that when someone buys the company. They're buying the right to have control. So you need to make sure that you adopt you know, any change that they're really looking to do unless it's a non-negotiable change. 
So you think about it as binary. You accept it mm-hmm. or you're willing to get fired for it. Ooh, I like that. Yep. Yeah. And it's a really great way to frame it. Because if you look at it, it's like, is this an issue I'm willing to get fired over? Uh, makes it way easier. So stuff that a lot of people get hung up on, like the coffee machines, the food that's going to be in the kitchen, the scheduling of events, you know, whether we use Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whether we, you know, because we're an international company, do we all get, you know, Canadian and U.S. holidays or do we have local ones? Like, <laughs> really yeah. easy. It lets you not care about those and, you know, help your team with that change because mm-hmm. if someone acquires your company, chances are they're bigger than you. They're mm-hmm. more, as a company, then they're more mature. So they have more processes. It's part of it. So effectively, you're just kind of growing up really fast. <laughs> but it also gives you permission to be a cantankerous jerk on the things that are really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, things like that were, I remember, we always saw vacation as a negotiable. It's like, and we had, I remember one employee in particular, she negotiated, hey, I'm, I'm comfortable taking a little bit lower salary, but I want the extra week vacation. And, and mm-hmm. I know you have a flexible policy, but I'd really like that to be my employment contract because that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, great. That's personal choice. That's really, really important. And I know it was important to her. When uh, NetSuite acquired our company, HR wanted to standardize on everything. And they're like, no, she, she only gets two weeks now. And for me, it was like, no, that was, that was a personal promise that I made to one of my team members. I'm willing to get fired over this. Uh, <laughs> it was entertaining because like, HR didn't get it. I was like, why, why is Joseph pushing about this? The bankers involved in the transaction were like, well, this is what we're going to do because there's legal compliance. It's like, well, no, we sell HR software. We know what the legal framework is for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice try. I can't pull that one yeah. over on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it made it easy, I think, for, for me as the founder, but it also made it really easy for the team to say, look, we know Joseph's going to fight for the things that are actually really important. And anything that he's not fighting on, maybe it's not that big a deal and we can get over it. So, Super, super good way to, I mean, truly, they, they can see by your actions and, and they, they know what to expect based on the clarity there. It, what, going back to that, the deal that fell, fell apart at the 11th hour, was there any of this stuff involved or what were some of the reasons that the, the deal fell, out, fell apart? I wish there was. I was, I was naive and young and hadn't gone through this very much. Uh, so the nature of it was... Uh, so our, our largest competitor was a subsidiary of a, a larger firm. Uh, effectively, they were, they were licensing. It was kind of like a franchise thing. Uh, and they didn't like having to be a franchise and paying all the franchise fees. So they thought, hey, if I just buy this competitor, I can run that business. I mean, mm-hmm. they're being very entrepreneurial. I love the thinking. It's great. Except we structured the whole agreement under their new holding company that was going to own this new thing. So there was... No personal guarantees, no name participation. It was just this new entity. And I mean, everything looked good. It looked okay. It was a very small business. It was a very small transaction. Um, We're literally walking out of the office carrying boxes into the trunk of a tiny little Hyundai Elantra. That close. Yeah. It was going to be an hour and a half highway drive. And, you know, we're going to like shake hands, transfer data, everything like that. it was great. I mean, we were going to be out of the business. There was a couple of months of part-time, you know, carryover. We're dropping stuff off and they call us something like, our financing has fallen through. We're, we're not going to be at the meeting. Oh my gosh. And and the immediate reaction was like, okay, great. We're, we're going to call you back because we're in the middle of a parking lot at the moment. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's like, process. rip open the deal docs. Like, what is this? What is the ramification? Are they allowed to do this? Like, what the? And I'm like, yeah, okay. They can't under the terms of the agreement. But our actual only option is to chase this 
holding company that has no money in it under their own declaration. So we, we learned a lot from that. The, the sad part was that we were so mentally disengaged with the business then is we effectively mothballed it and shuttered it because we'd already gotten to that finish line. Yeah. Oh, man. So going with the, with the business's sense, like how have you protected yourself from that, like those circumstances? So part of it, I think that the large part was the, the very emotional lesson about getting ourselves so emotionally vested in the transaction that we didn't have a recovery plan. And in tech companies, the way that happens is the acquirer gets the founding team so excited. They say, as part of the diligence, we really want to meet the team, understand how the roles are going to change. And, and so then as a founder, you tell the team, by the way, we're, we might get acquired by this company. We're going to do some interviews and here's what it might mean. But then everybody's getting excited. Like, what does this mean? Am I going to get some money out of this? Or we're going to have some new bosses all involved. And at the end of the day, if it looks like it's going to fall apart, it actually comes down as you know what, this this doesn't look like what we think it's going to be. So either the deal is going to fall apart or we need to apply a big discount to it. And a lot of entrepreneurs get themselves in that situation. And mm -hmm. uh, part of the ways we protected the team was we only ever gave access to kind of key employees so that they'd be involved. And these would be employees that we'd say, hey, legitimately, this might not happen. So yeah. don't, you know, don't promise this. Don't do this Don't because it may not happen. Uh and we only brought people in to meet our team when the transaction was closed. Got it. So did you tell anybody like uh, any part of your team like prior, so like prior to the, were they part of the due diligence or anything like that? Or was it yeah. you guys just doing it? So that way, because a lot of people that like overcompensate by giving away an unproportional amount of equity or stay bonuses because it's always like an after the fact or afterthought. And how did you guys handle that? Yeah. So we always had really participatory approach to equity. So I've always believed in every employee getting options or equity, depending on when they joined. Um, mm -hmm. During the diligence, there's always key employees that have to participate. Uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm reaching back. So the last time we closed the transaction, it's been 2013, there was 26 people in the company, so small team. Uh, and I think we had six of us on the key employee list. So there's six of us that knew about the transaction before it was officially done. Uh, and I mean, the reality is, I, I, I shared the way I, I, I did it all as this neat bow. But it caused a lot of anxiety because our team was used to, hey, when we close a major financing, we've got an all hands. We talk about, by the way, we've raised X million dollars, high yep, fives, yep. here's what we're doing. Let's get to work. We pulled one of those meetings together and everyone expected, great, we've raised X million because investors had been going through. And instead, it was like, by the way, we've sold the company. The new buyers are downstairs in a coffee shop. We're going to bring them up soon. Uh, and I know it caused a lot of, it caused a lot of fear and uncertainty. We busted our asses to make sure that the team was taken care of. And so there was a big win for everybody. Uh, but yeah, the trade-off was that we couldn't carry people along that journey. So we did have to over-index on time afterwards with them. Uh, but it avoided a scenario where we had effectively, you know, promised that we would sell the company and then had to roll it back. Oh my gosh, I mean, that could destroy, yeah, destroy companies. Because you can do it as it, like you and your partner had that situation and you can handle however you want to do with it. But all of a sudden you got a bunch of other people that are responsible for chugging along the company. It's a whole different story. Totally. Um, moving on to, to, so I want to go and talk about you've, you. You've successfully scaled and sold multiple companies. You're young, right? You're not sitting here at a 70 years old. You talked about you, you want to be having this next journey to be longer because you're kids. So before I get into, I, I want to make sure that we had spent some time at the end towards like 
how you're structuring this more long-term approach with your company compared to the other more rapid exits. So let's get there. But before you're, you're big on sales and how, what are some of the sales strategies and tactics that have allowed you to scale these companies to a point where the, the revenue and the growth is, is appealing to other people and is now something that people actually are, are, are yearning for to, to purchase? Yeah. I love that question. So the first thing that I should share is that most of my experience is all B to B. So, you know, folks are listening in and they've got more of a consumer, uh, business, uh, some of my comments may not entirely apply. And I, I recognize that I won't be offended if you disagree. Uh, well, then that's second thing you get into it's well, one, one note on that too, Joseph is like, it's a, cause I grew up in B2B, right? It's copiers yeah. and manage IT services and you name it. And no. it's like, I'm, I got clients now in, in uh, B2C where the, it's con- consumer where they're selling online and there's this massive funnel with, you know, all these, it's like, you don't need a hundred thousand dollar salesperson to sell dresses or sunglasses on Amazon. <laughs> it's a little bit different. So I, I think this is, and that's why I'm intrigued with this question is because when you integrate sales and marketing, it has to be a comprehensive approach and you have more complex sales. It's, it's truly, it needs to be systematized in order to grow a valuable business because you can't build a forecast on nothing. So I think it's totally, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's just important context. It's totally true. Yeah, hundred um, percent. That B2B versus B2C thing, you're right about the kind of sophistication of the sales motion needed. I think there's a, a few other things that are, are really helpful. So the, the first one that comes to mind is that idea of measuring everything, like just everything, uh, and I don't mean like write it down if you have to, sure, but use the software, the tools to measure everything. Like, you know, things like I don't use my cell phone for sales calls. I always use an app because it will track it and log it for me and let me know what the result was. Things like emailing, you know, I don't, I never send sales emails from my mobile device because it's not hooked into things that will track it. I always mm-hmm. send from my computer because yeah, I can move faster, but then it'll track everything. I, I share that because in B2C sales, for example, like especially with e-commerce or high-velocity transactions, there are more things that are often measured automatically. In B2B, folks often lose track of it. You know, the sales <laughs> rep is driving between meetings, they hop into a call, nothing makes it into the CRM. The sales, like, sales rep is yeah. stubborn, won't plug anything to yeah, the CRM. <laughs> totally, yeah. But when, it's, like, when you're B2C, and like, if you've got a rep that is going to do 100 e-commerce transactions in a day, no, no, like everything is automated. So mm-hmm. measure everything has been a big one. The second one, and again, I think this problem doesn't exist in B2C as much, is that in a B2B world, the way a founder sells, the way a CEO sells, cannot ever be replicated by an individual. Thank you. And you're going to have thousands of people that are listening in right now go, oh my God, Joseph, thank you for saying that. Because they're all going, how do I replace myself who's the passionate founder who knows everything about the business? And they can't. And that's one of the biggest problems people have. Yeah. It, it's classic. You know, the entrepreneur goes, okay, I found this great sales rep. I really like them. I bought from them. I want to have a sales experience like this. Come on board, listen to my calls, watch what I'm doing, and then kind of do what I do. And then and be it's me. A recipe, yeah, it's a recipe for failure. Uh, and it's not because an entrepreneur or founder is doing it badly. It's just the social construct is different. Like, think about it. Like an entrepreneur calls you up and is like, I've got this business. We're changing the world. Can yeah. I tell you a little bit about it? Like, inherently, you're like, I'm excited. I want this person to win. I'm looking for an excuse to buy from them. Uh-huh. Uh, that's very different, you know, than, than you know, Jimmy or Susan, who's like, hey, I'm the first sales rep at this company, and I'd like to tell you more about the problems that we solve. Like, the mental contract is like, yeah, I want to talk to Yeah, right rep. off the bat. Yep, 100%. So just 
the social construct is so different, so they can't be the same. And I think really being deliberate as a founder to say, what are the things I'm doing that are actually moving the deal forward? And then looking at those and saying, is this something that I have to do or somebody else can do? And mm-hmm. that's really how you figure out that sales role. Uh, so that's that's the hardest part. But once you do it once or twice in, in a given company, then you can hire many more. So what... what when you think about, because I'm I'm tracking you totally. So from the measuring to okay, we let's say we've hired another person. So, what are the ways that you've seen that like actually ratchet up the sales activity to be more predictable? Because I mean, it's gonna be a combination. Like depending on you know, I came from the business to business technology sales. I got clients that are, you name it, what consulting or you know manufacturing whatever it is. So there's more of that process and building the relationship how like what have you seen that really moves the the needle forward as far as like the sales process and how does that change per industry so the interesting thing i'm going to answer the second part first Mm -hmm. because i think this is an interesting one um the differences between industries have been narrowing and the pandemic accelerated that uh like toby lukey the ceo at shopify put it the right way 2030 showed up early Uh, and (laughs) it's it's true but uh the way every industry, every B2B industry is selling is becoming more and more like software as a service. So give, to give you an example, mm-hmm. um, one of the companies that hired a bunch of our grads with great success, like they crushed it, they, they sell solar panels and solar technology. And their old way of selling was look at an industrial park who has a big roof. Let's knock on their door and say, hey, you can monetize it and we'll make it easy for you. And that worked yeah. out. You know, somebody yeah. goes, well, I got a big roof and I can make money. Okay. Uh, pandemic stopped them from doing that so their selling motion afterwards was like looking at linkedin to source companies looking at google maps to assess size reach out with email video messaging just like a software company sells um there's a great gartner study that talks about how 80 percent of online sales interactions sorry 80 percent of b2b sales interactions will happen online over the next five years wow another great that's crazy yeah yeah mckenzie did a study asking business owners how much they'd be willing to spend never meeting the sales rep in person. <laughs> uh, last year's study, uh, 80% of them were willing to spend up to 50 grand never meeting the sales rep. 50, is that a year? Or what was the time? No, in a, a transaction, like in oh. a transaction. Yeah. Whoa. So, so and kind of just, yeah, the idea of people selling over Zoom kind of calls the way software gets sold is going to happen in every industry. So that's a helpful one, I think, for the audience. Because if you're not doing it, your competition is. And that means like you might be in New York and that team in Mexico City is going to sell to your customers. So it's scary. The things to do as a company owner, though, the the two things I highlight are the idea of getting to the right amount of scale early on helps you Mm -hmm. assess better and uh, focusing on the, the customer's experience. So right amount of scale if you're if you're doing the sales as an owner, don't hire one sales rep. Hire two. Your first hires it should be a pair. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't compare. All you can compare is I'm saying, you know, I'm I'm doing this thing, and and I think we should do it this way, and you should do it this way, and it's a, you know, it's opinion. My wh- whose yep. opinion's better? Mm-hmm. If you have two sales reps, then you can actually say, hey, here's the motion, uh, and they can actually compare results, and then they know it's not you or the market; it's what they're doing. So that's that's number one. Always start with two. On the knowing the customer. Most founders that I bump into, most entrepreneurs, know their product really well. Like if you're selling promotional goods, you know the inventory, you know the way it works. If you're selling software, same thing. If you're selling auto parts, you know all the machining. A sales rep doesn't need to know the product. 
Like a lot of people feel uncomfortable with that. They don't need to know anything about the product. What they need to know is everything about the customer. You know, what's their pain point? What do they experience day to day? You know, what what gets them? Um, here's a. I'll make a real example. Mm-hmm. Part of what we and our, if folks are listening in, they can't see me do the scare quote sell. Uh, is we we pair our grads with tech companies who are hiring sales reps. So to a certain extent, it's like we're selling the talent. Like, hey, hire our mm-hmm. grads. It makes us very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We could talk about the features and the benefits. They hit quota faster. They hit quota higher. They've got industry experience. We could talk about those things, and that's really good. I was just on a call yesterday, and what they were experiencing, what the CEO was experiencing, was that he's in the middle of raising his Series B. And he's like, so we need to make sure we hit our revenue targets so this round comes together the way we want. Uh, And as wrapping up the call, what we talked about was, how do we take some more time off your plate so you can focus on that B? And how do we guarantee you that you're going to hit your numbers so that your round comes together? Because that's what he's obsessing over. He doesn't actually care about the ramp time and the quota mm-hmm. attainment. He, you know, if he needs to hire 10 reps instead of eight, he'll do that to make sure he gets the round. And helping your first sales reps, it, as owners, you know the customer, you really do. You think you're connecting because you know the product, but it's the customer experience that you need to equip your sales reps with. So insightful, Joseph. And like the reality is like so few people are good at listening and actually being curious about the customer. And I think, you know, so I think by it, maybe back to your kind of the the social contract, the business owners and the founders generally create a lot of times they create a product or service that fits the need that they hated or the need that was out in the marketplace. So it's like, kind of like, that's why your new business is there, right? So you're like, so you actually know the customer so well because you're helping solve the problem. And it's not about the product. The product is actually just solving the problem. So you're just describing the problem in a different way. That's exactly it. It's like, you you don't even realize what you know so much about. Interesting. So, because I know we're getting, we're getting close to the end of here is, I'm I'm super curious with like multiple exits and all your sales knowledge and just your ability to scale. How, like when you're thinking about this venture, because this, mm-hmm. this is, it's important for you to be, you know, doing the right things. You said you wanted to last longer. What are you doing differently in this company to accomplish that compared to some of the other things that you've done? I think one of the big things, it's really hard. It, I, I hear the question and my immediate reaction is like, well, we're doing this different. We're doing this different. <laughs> like, yeah. I've gone through a couple of companies and every time we just raise the bar. So it always feels just as hard, uh, which really... At some point, I need to do something that feels easier. Uh, You wouldn't be happy, man. Come on, that's a human. That's human. Human biology. (laughs) Um, I I think the one thing we are really doing different is bringing in experienced leaders sooner and faster. So, really trying to push ownership of different areas of the business down to the executives bringing on in in a much more significant way. And oh, it's so uncomfortable. I I suck at it. What's uncomfortable about it for you? I'm just super. So one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur is that you know everything about the business, but that means you know a dangerous amount of marketing, but you're not, not a marketing expert, a dangerous amount about your product, dangerous, like, all these things. And you have opinions about everything. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, true yeah that. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to say, Hey, go do this. And I trust you to not ask for my feedback. Because if, if you ask for my feedback, I'm going to give it. But all that does is undermine people's confidence. So mm-hmm. that's what I find so hard. Getting to the point where I can, and I try to use these words to remind myself how to do it. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I trust your decisions. So it's like, just go run with it. 
And then I try to be specific when I feel like I need to be involved. And it's a hard thing because I, as CEO, you see every little bit of the business. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of my employees phrased it the right way. It's like, yeah, things are good when you know Joseph has enough confidence that he's letting you run with it. But when he's asking questions that can feel like he doesn't have confidence and those moments feel like the eye of Sauron kind of focusing on you. And, <laughs> Yeah, and it. it's innocuous questions sometimes. You're like, oh, I want to hear what's new with the customers. And people are like, crap. Uh, well, so why is he asking? Am I not doing my yeah. job? <laughs> yeah. So I need to struggle. I need to work on that because it's a tough one. How about uh, with the with the overall potential liquidation? I mean, every business could trade. And in this one, you said you wanted to last a lot longer. And I'm going to see if I can put some color to this question to make sure that it, it lands correctly. Is that I, what I want? One of the things that I want for this show, Joseph, is that someone that can be super, super passionate and excited about their business and what they're doing and the impact that they're making, the wealth that they're creating. Also holding this, this, like this spot for, Hey, this could, I could get an offer that doesn't align with my timeline. Like, cause you know, we can't, what's the whole, you know, what's Mike Tyson. Everybody makes a plan. Then you get punched in the face, but you still want that plan. And, and so how do you, how are you looking at the business model differently when and how you could potentially get that liquidation event while staying as passionate about the, the, the legacy that you're le- and the impact that you're making? Yeah. So number one, I don't, I don't try to think about it as how do I make sure I could always uh, like entertain a transaction right at the moment. So I, I try to not thinking about it that way because I want to focus on building a really good company. And ultimately, if you build a really good company, now, acquisition opportunities come. Uh, mm-hmm. What I do think about, though, is how do I avoid hiccups that could interfere? So one of the investors that I talked to, I think, put it really, really well. When someone's looking at investing in your company or they're looking to buy your company, they're not generating a list of all the reasons to buy. What they're doing is they're generating in their head the list of all the reasons not to buy. So as they go through, they're like, oh, that's ugly. I'm going to put a list on that. Oh, that's oh, ugly. Man. Look at it. Like, oh, that's ugly. Look at that. And then at some point, that list gets long enough. They're like, there's too much hair on this. I, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I try to think about it as we're running the business. How do I avoid things that would be on that list? And it's there's stupid fundamental things like, does everybody have an employment contract? Do you have a list of the vendors that you work with? Do, did you file your taxes? Like, <laughs> These yeah, sound really basis. silly. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right though. But as an entrepreneur, you're putting out fires and you can never put them all out. So I try to prioritize thinking about it as like if something came in today, is this thing going to be a, a hairy, nasty thing on that list that might mm-hmm. scupper a transaction? Because if it's not, that means it's probably not the most urgent thing. Uh, and so we we try to keep keep our house in order. And as a result, every time we've been in a transaction, the buyer has always remarked, wow, this was really, really smooth. This was really easy. Like, we expect to find skeletons in the closet and, and there weren't any. Mm-hmm. And that makes it easier for us. It means that naturally the transactions are maximized because they're not going to try and negotiate it down. And, and you have options. Then I'm just trying to prioritize day to day. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got options. I mean, it, fantastic. So I know we're short here. I want to um, ask two final questions. And the first one is I, I love asking the people what the word intentional means, Joseph, because the name of the show and I've just... I've learned a lot by just people's answers. So I'm curious for you, what does the word intentional mean? Intentional really means having a deliberate end goal and pushing yourself every day to move closer to that goal. It's not just a nice to have, it's actually moving towards it. Love that answer. So then the last one is, 
if people want to know more about you, the business, where's all your contact information? What are you doing now? And what can, what can people do to find you? Totally. Uh, if you're, if anyone's looking to hire B2B sales reps, they can always hit us up on the website, uh, uvaro.com, U-V-A-R-O.com. Uh, always, always happy to help uh, place our grads somewhere. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm on most social channels like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, all at Joseph Fung, that's F-U-N-G, all one word. Uh, and always happy to connect, especially with other founders and entrepreneurs. Joseph, this has been a blast, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Likewise, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joseph. I can't tell you, like just listening to him, he really has his mind in the right spot. He's focusing on the right things. And you can just tell that his stoic yet passionate perspective and approach towards business is very, very beneficial for him. I'd say that my biggest takeaway is that he truly has this way of viewing your company as a way to make an impact, but also wealth, as well as enjoy what you're doing and the things that you're progressing towards your goals, whatever they might be. So I think the the big takeaway is getting into that mindset is the first step of understanding that this business is a financial asset. What can you do with it to grow value and make the right impact? And then tie that to the eventual sale of the liquidation of your ownership and or your role. And just understanding this entire journey is, is huge because you can see and listen in Joseph's uh, tone that he really has it and he's having fun and he's making progress towards the things that he wants to accomplish. If you want to know uh, a little bit more about how to do that, go check out the Intentional Growth course. We have a bunch of material in there. The first principle really ties into how do you get that mindset of what do you want long term? And then there's all the mechanics about how to view valuations, make sure the things that you're going towards and investing in are going to grow value. So that way you can have the choices and the, you know the, the temperament that Joseph does, because I, you can tell that that peace of mind is definitely worth the, uh, the effort and the work. So thanks for tuning in and I will see everybody next week.